to turn in their Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Hebrews 12. All right, I'd like to uh, go to the Lord in prayer first before we look at this text. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can come to You. We can come to You as expectant children who have daily need of bread, and we will always find You faithful. You will always provide for us just exactly what we need. For each day. And even in our time now together around the Word, this is a time of expectancy, a time to be looking for our daily bread. You have said, you said to the serpent, to, the, to, to Satan in the wilderness, you said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so as we look at this text this morning, may you cause our hearts to be opened, and may we see you speak to us, Lord. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. See if you can place this song in your memory. The hills are alive with the sound of music. With the songs they have sung for a thousand years, the hills fill my heart with the sound of music. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. Beautiful lyrics. Uh, You can see Julie Andrews uh, in the Swiss Alps, and you can see all the glories of the open field and the beauty. Uh, Later in the, the movie, for the screen edition, Maria tells her mother confessor, I can't seem to stop singing wherever I am. And what's worse, I can't seem to stop saying things and anything and everything that comes to my mind. And of course, we love uh, Maria and her uh, just simple, almost childlike spirit that she has. And uh, throughout the film, the, the heart is actually featured as a trustworthy guide to life's activities and decisions. Now, don't think this is where I'm going exactly. There is a sense in which the human heart is um, deceitful, and I mentioned that last Sunday, that we need to be careful about trusting the human heart. But what I like about the sound of music is that we've been created with a heart that experiences joy. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy is something that is mirrored within the Godhead. And we've been created to have this capacity as human beings. And so I think at times when we see beautiful sights, when we see beautiful actions, it's appropriate for our hearts to be moved with joy and then refocus that joy up. Refocus that joy upon the Lord who allows us to see the beauties 
that are on the earth and the experiences that we see. Uh, one of my favorite uh, experiences, one of my favorite memories that I like to replay in my mind is hiking in Nova Scotia on, around the edge of Cape Breton, hiking through the ravines towards the, the, the Atlantic and towards the ocean, and coming out and seeing a brook pour into the ocean at about evening time, and seeing the pink, uh, the pink colors from the sunset meeting the sea. And I replay the beauty and, the, and the, 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 the hearing of those sounds, and my heart is moved with joy every time I contemplate that experience. Now, you all have probably had those experiences. I want to encourage you that when you have those experiences, transfer the sight of beauty that you're enjoying and remember the Lord God who created all that you see and worship God and take joy in Him. This morning, I'm thinking about worship, thinking about the the beauty that God is and His creation that fills our visual sight And I'm also reminded of Psalm 16, verse 11, because there's a transcendent beauty that exists in God Himself. Psalm 16 says, You make make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is a beautiful invitation to experience joy from our Heavenly Father. And I think that if we know how to take pleasure at the seashore, then we certainly can know how to take pleasure in God who's created all of these things. And I want to turn our focus because we're thinking about beauty, we're thinking about joy, we're thinking about worship of the Lord here this morning. I think that when we look at emblems like the cross… We ought, as believers, see it with a different set of eyes. For an unbeliever, the cross looks like abstract art. But for us who know the realities of all that was paid at that cross, it is a joyous view. It is a beautiful view. Our souls can take delight in the beauty of our Heavenly Father. And so, I think it's also important for us to realize that when we, when we look at Christians, we're unbelievers turning, and I think we've all had this experience, turning from sin to the Savior, we see that as a beautiful thing. We see people who are growing and changing in their walk with God. That's beautiful to us as believers because that's, that's, that's where the new heaven and new earth is going. And so, the beauties that we see now in the fallen world that we live, when we see glimpses of the new heaven and new earth, it should fill us with great joy in worship and adoration for the Lord. I know this is a bit of a longer introduction, but I want to tie in here some of the things that we were hearing in our worship service, the Scripture reading, and how the great, the saints coming out of the great tribulation, a myriad of people standing before the throne exclaiming over the the glories of the salvation that belongs to God. There is a beauty there in that experience. And when they sang, amen, blessing, 
and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to God forever and ever. Amen. That is just, should lift our hearts to join with them. I don't know if you were hearing that in the Scripture reading. I, I was hoping you were hearing and anticipating the excitement that we're going to experience. But I think it's critically important for us as believers to know that we are God's people now. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can take joy in the Lord now and be worshiping with those saints even now in the presence of the Lord before His throne. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews, and I want us to be able to see that the church worships around the throne now as God's people. There is a one day in which faith will become sight, but when the people of God assemble now, there is a real sense in which we are worshiping before the throne of God now. And so this morning, I'm going to be looking at three whys, how I see this to be true, and then I'm going to show you very uh, briefly three hows of how we worship before the throne now. It's important for us to see the why in this so that we can, we can actually go into the how as believers. And so, we're going to read the text. I'm going to read it through um, all together, and then we're going to break it into little pieces um, and look at each of these, these whys. So, let's read verse 18. Follow along as I read. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens." This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." The first why here 
that it could be said that the church worships around the throne now as God's people is this. We belong, first of all, to a spiritual kingdom. We belong to a spiritual kingdom. In verses 18 through 22, just the first couple of verses, what we see is a contrast, and we see them around tangibles. Notice that uh, in verse 18 and 20, he says, you've come to something that you cannot touch. In verse 19, he describes how the people of the Old Testament could hear the trumpets blaring. They could hear the fire on the mountains. They could see, verse 21, and it's describing the events that occurred after the Exodus and the people coming out of the Red Sea. Turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Exodus for a moment, please. Exodus chapter 19. I want you to read what it was that they experienced and what they said. We don't want to hear any more of this. What was that like? We have Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 to 20. You can picture this, the whole assembly of Israel was sitting out underneath of the mountain of God, the same mountain that Moses had gone up and experienced seeing the burning bush, and this was where he was going to go to receive the Ten Commandments. And here at the foot of the mountain, on the third morning, verse 16, uh, of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, And God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. Let's drop down to chapter 20. This is on the other side of the reception of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20, verse 18. And now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the smoke, mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off and said to Moses, you speak to us, and, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin." And the people stood far off, and while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's quite a picture, quite a visual display. I think of recent events that we've read about in Tennessee and the, the tornadoes touching down around Nashville. As horrifying as those were, for the residents, they had very little anticipation. It was, it, was, it was there and it was gone. 
The people standing here at the foot of the mountain would have heard it getting louder and louder and louder. And they would have been covering their ears. The children would have been crying. It would have been overwhelming to hear and see and experience what they were experiencing. In fact, uh, in the book of Hebrews, Paul mentions that Moses, when he even heard those things, he said, I I trembled with fear. Why was it that he was trembling? Moses was trembling with fear. In fact, that's a quotation that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 9, and I want you to see these words. Moses said, for I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. I don't know if you realize this, but Moses had known the terrifying wrath of God personally. Moses, like the children of Israel, had hardened his heart when God called him to do ministry, to, to lead his people out of, out of Egypt. There in the mountain of God, he was told, go and talk to Pharaoh, and Moses hardened his heart four times and said no. There's a horrifying experience that's recorded in Exodus chapter 4 in which while he was on his way to meet his, his brother, Aaron, the Lord met him in the way and was about ready to kill him because of his hardness of heart. Now, God did not kill him. What it did was it humbled him. He softened his heart and became responsive. But Moses was very aware of the terror, the, the wrath of God And if Moses had not pled for the people of God while he was up in the mountain, God probably very well would have destroyed them all. If you remember the incident, the golden calf, and they started to dance and worship this golden calf underneath of the mountain, and God was prepared to wipe them all out. God's wrath is real. And this is what the Old Testament people experienced. They experienced firsthand the wrath of God. In the mountain, there's a description of God that is given to Moses. he, He asks to see God, and he's going to parade his righteousness before him. And this is what Moses heard, the description of who God was. God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did you hear that last phrase? I mean, we, we, we love the epithets of God's forgiveness and His grace, but we often downplay the very real aspects of God's wrath and His coming judgment upon the world for sin and sinners. One day, the world will be enveloped in the wrath of God. Now, that's what the Old Testament people were seeing and hearing. One day, this world is going to see and hear that for themselves if they've hardened their hearts. What's amazing here, if you go back to Hebrews 12, I invite you to go back with me because there's a tremendous contrast here. This is how we need to see this. 
If you can turn back to Hebrews chapter 12, I'll wait till you get there. But Hebrews 12 and verse 22. I'll pick up with verse 21 where Paul's writing. He says, Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Here's the contrast, verse 22. But you, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. This is what we have come to if we have responded by faith to the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, an unbelieving and rebellious heart will downplay the coming wrath of God and is often more impressed with what they see, what they can touch, and what they can hear. And since the eyes of their hearts are closed, they're unmoved by the spiritual realities of the cross. I think we need to understand and really deeply appreciate that we have been given something marvelous if we are able to see the glories of the cross. You know, we have physical trials that we experience, but as we experience physical trials, we ought not to be moved from the sight of the cross. This was what paid it all for us and allows us to worship in the midst of our trials and experience and sing for joy before the throne even now. Yes, we have trials. Yes, we have painful experiences. But we ought to lift up our drooping hands and strengthen our knees and not abandon the faith commitment that we have made. We are a part of a spiritual kingdom that this world cannot see. We can see it if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Our eyes have been opened. You know, there are so many people who, who are like those seeds that, that when they get planted in the soil and the hardness of life begins to come, they, they sprout up quickly, but then they wither away because there's really no foundation there. We are not like those folks. We are those who are people of the true kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. I want you to see some of the responses of those who don't see this. In Ephesians 12, we have to back up just a little bit because Paul begins to apply this truth. And in verse 12, he says, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that, you're, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so, in, because we live in a spiritual kingdom, we are to be people who strive for peace with everyone. Because in the end, everything else doesn't matter. And as we strive for peace with everyone, we, we go for holiness. We want to be devoted to the Lord. 
Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. We as Christians take seriously our own hearts because that's what's real, that's what's lasting. We who are Christians, we, we, we think very little of sexual immorality. This world that we live in is, is drunk on it. And so, in verse 16, um, so he says, and that no one is sex- to be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And so that's how he's moving into this. We come to a different kind of world. We are a people of the spiritual kingdom. We're not touched by some of these experiences that this other, this, this, uh, this world that we live in experiences. I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, are the eyes of our hearts opened so that we perceive a world that cannot be touched? Do we perceive that we are a part of God's people now? Do we perceive the reality of Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts now? And I pray that we do. But I would encourage you, if this, this just seems like that's an abstract piece of art. Maybe your eyes have not been opened. I'd encourage you to confess your sin to the Lord. Receive Christ. Repent and be saved even today. A believer or an unbeliever, our hearts should feel the weight of sin. But here's the marvelous difference between those who are unbelieving and those who are believing. That instead of causing us to hear about sin and go like this, We pick up our legs and we run to the cross because it's beautiful. Someone who is weighed down by the guilt and they cycle into a guilt spiral, it's because they can't see the beauties of the cross. And this is how, this is why we worship as the church now around the throne. We have grace, and we can go to the throne of grace at any time. And so the church worships around the throne now as God's people, and that's the first why. The second why is we belong to an eternal kingdom, an eternal kingdom. As we shift from verse 22, that key little word, but, where it transitions, you have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in, in festal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. The phrase, have come, in verse 22, literally means that this person is It's like a proselyte. They're like a a recent convert. They've come to Mount Zion 
They've worshipped at other kinds of mountains, other important things. But no, now they are, they are worshipping Mount, at Mount Zion. And it's through repentance and faith that you leave the material world and you enter into the eternal kingdom of God. Instead of the wrath at Mount Zion, excuse me, the wrath at Mount Sinai, you experience the grace that's available at Mount Zion. Now, I know that Old Testament words can cause us confusion. Mount Zion is… Uh, is a reference to where Jerusalem is located. Some of us who may be unfamiliar or newer to reading the Scriptures, um, that's an Old Testament term for Jerusalem. It's the beautiful city. It was the place where the kings of Israel lived. It was the capital. It was where the future Messiah would come. But notice how, how Paul is describing it. It's, it's the city of the living God. We're, we're like worshiping now there. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. The festival city, the assembly of the firstborn, enrolled in heaven. And I want us to think about that phrase, enrolled in heaven. It's on the basis of the blood and righteousness of Christ that we have access to that new heaven. Enrolled in heaven. That's a phrase that's very curious. I believe it refers to the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 3 and Revelation 21 talk about the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21 says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, not anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. A lot of speculation exists within Christian circles as to what the book of life is is and what it's referring to. And very simply, the book of life is a metaphor. It's a lot like our birth certificate system here in America. In ancient days, there was an official registrar who recorded the names of the citizens of a city in the book. And when a person moved out of the city or died, their names were blotted out. Those who were born into that city had their names recorded. It was a safety mechanism so that they would have, they would have elders sitting at the gate and observing and, and checking to make sure that people, people who were coming into the city were, were really belonging to that city. How is it that a person, though, would be enrolled as citizens of heaven? I think that we can answer that question together. Jesus said it in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must have that eternal life within you in order to be enrolled in heaven. When does eternal life begin? Be careful. Eternal life begins when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's not after you die and leave this, this world. Eternal life begins with that momentary creation of life within you when you are born again. You see, a person who is born again 
does not need to physically touch, hear, or see Christ. They have the Holy Spirit living within them, giving them eyes to see and love Jesus Christ, who is eternal. Yes, we have trials, we have temptations, we have overriding drives of life, but yet there is underneath all of these, there is a present awareness that we are now a part of the assembly of those who are enrolled in heaven now. We're sojourners here, but we are also saints celebrating the Lamb before the throne. The third why is found in verse 25 to 29. And in verse 25, I want us to see the key for this why. We belong, yes, we belong to a spiritual kingdom, an eternal kingdom, but we also belong to an unshakable, unshakable kingdom. In verse 25, we read these words, "'See that you do not refuse him who is speaking.'" For if they did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject Him who is warning from heaven? I apologize, that should be uh, verse 28 is where the key comes. Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It cannot be shaken. There's coming a day in which this whole world will be shaken as we know it. It will be shaken and dissolve, the elements will dissolve, and as they dissolve, that which is real will become manifest. A friend of mine recently said that he was thinking about preaching his way through the book of Haggai this summer in his church and pulpit ministry. And I, I thought, well, that's, that's, that's good. You actually might like me to preach through Haggai because it's only two chapters long. But I had preached at Christmas time from Haggai. Because in the Haggai, there's this beautiful little promise of a coming temple in which all the nations will come and flock to. And in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, that attribute is given to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true temple, the one whom all the nations will flock to. And here, this quotation, Paul is doing the same thing. He's, he's quoting again he's from the book of Haggai and says, Yet once, a little, once more in a little while, I will shake heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Once more? Didn't it shake the world when Christ came into this world the first time and, and totally revolutionized the world? And all nations can now worship freely at the foot of the throne of God? Yes. But there's coming a day when Christ returns and there'll be a, a, a worldwide shaking in which everything that we see will disappear and we will see Christ. And we will see those who are truly believers and those whom we think were believers and are not will be taken away. We live in a different kingdom. And the text here, Paul is focusing our attention upon the fact that, that those who will remain will worship the Lord in a new heaven and a new earth. 
But that worship has already begun. We who are God's people now, we worship around the throne even now, anticipating a day in which is coming. And so, we worship because we're a part of an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, and one that is unshakable. I want to very briefly give you three hows here of how we can actually put this into practice. Very briefly, because they come out of the same, same little section. Verse 25, the first way that we can worship the Lord as God's people is first is just by obedience, by worship, worshiping God through obedience. In verse 25, he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. To refuse the one who is speaking is to do what the people in the Old Testament did who tried to cover their ears and say, I don't want to hear this anymore. I can't take this anymore. If you are God's people now, your heart should be saying, yes, Lord, whatever you would want me to do, Lord. That's how we worship before the throne now. We obey the voice of God as it's proclaimed in the Bible. And the first is the gospel call. God is calling all the nations to repent and to believe the gospel. That is the first point of response in obedience. I mean, this, and then the, the scripture calls Christians to live a life of devotion and obedience. And it's very clear on how Christians ought to live in their marriages, how husbands and wives are to submit to one another, to love one another. Scripture is very clear on how parents and children are to relate to one another, to be obedient. The Scripture is very clear on following the Lord through believer's baptism. The Scripture is very clear on submitting to the authority of a local congregation through membership, through mutual care of one another. Scripture is very clear about the practice of church discipline. Scripture is very clear on leadership within the church. The Scripture is very clear on love and hospitality to one another. This is how we worship the Lord. We obey Him and do the things that He's asked us to do, even now, before the face of God. The second how is we worship through confidence. We worship through confidence. In, uh, in these verses… There's an absolute certainty in verse 26 that he who did that which he promised in the old dispensation is going to do what he promised in this one. Once more, I will shake the earth. That's something you can take to the bank. You can be absolutely certain that Christ is coming again. And so, we can worship with a confident heart that He's coming again. We can live boldly in a world that's getting darker. We can let our light shine before others. We should not be filled with fear as the people of God. Instead, we should be very confident that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church. It doesn't matter if we have loss of income. It doesn't matter if there's apostasy of people falling away. Christ will build His church. 
and God will hold His people fast. The third way, the third how, if you will, is that we can worship with joy and reverence. We can worship with joy and reverence. Look at what it says here in the last, last section here, verse 28 and 29. We, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. For thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, that's a strange way to end it. We, we might have thought differently to describe the reason for which we can have joy and reverence. But the reality is that if we understand the very character of God, that He is a consuming fire, but we will not have to face the fire because Christ has endured the fire for us. We need to be thinking about how we worship God and remember His character. He is both a God of wrath, but He is also a God of grace who who gives us freedom because of Christ to worship Him. I think that as we think as a corporate body, as we sing Scripture, we sing songs, we need to be be struck by the gospel centrality that we sing. When we sing, our lyrics should offend people at times, or it should convert unbelievers to the truth. And so, we ought to also think about our response to God, not just as we meditate on the character of God and we think about His glory, we also should be thinking about our own response. We ought to be, to be thinking in terms of a, a joyful and reverent response. You know, those things don't always go together in our thinking. Sometimes we think that if we are singing reverently, if we are like singing reverently, we can't be joyful. And if we're joyful, we can't be reverent. These go together. I mean, Psalm 2, uh, the book of Psalms is just, will break that paradigm in faulty thinking. I'm just going to, I had several that I was going to mention, but I'm just going to mention Psalm 2 for right now. Look at the words in this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with what? That's antithetical. Do those don't go together, do they? Yes, they do. And it's joy and reverence. They ought not to be pitted against one another. Our corporate worship ought to be a meeting with the great God of all creation, the great God of, of, of wrath, but also of His grace. We are not consumed by the fire. It is because of Christ that we are not consumed. Now, this is my last message in our series on the church. I really, I really want to encourage you to reflect. Reflect upon the themes that we've considered. Those who are born again, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we are now the people of God. 1 Peter 2 Verse 9, we started in this text, but notice that it comes full circle. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, get this, that you might proclaim 
that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness. That is where the glory is. That's where the joy is. I'm praying that the tabernacle would be a joyful church, a joyful church, deeply committed to one another as a community of believers, and we can take the grace of Jesus Christ to the world. I'm praying that that we will be like Maria here in these hills of Wayne County, the whole county and the hills would come alive with the sound of Jesus. How beautiful that would be. The church worships around the throne now as God's people. Let's pray.